and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by Thomas Chatterton Williams. He is now a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, so we're happy to welcome him a couple months late. And he is also the author of Self-Portrait in Black and White, Family, Fatherhood, and Rethinking Race. And he is the author most recently, actually, of a, of a great piece in the Wall Street Journal that was pegged to the issue of Black History Month. And we wanted to talk to him about how kids are learning about race today. Yeah. Hey, Thomas. Great to see you. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we're actually taking this in March and Black History Month was February. So I guess now we can officially stop celebrating Black history. Now it's uh, Women's History Month. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's, that's <laughs> right. So come April. What about Black women? All, <laughs> what about come Black women? We're all screwed. Um, <laughs> but Thomas, you in your piece, Beyond Black History Month, it is very powerful because you're talking about, you know, how do we move forward as a country on issues of race? And you have a very interesting sort of philosophy, which is to we need to unlearn race. We need to sort of deplatform its importance. And yet in K through 12 schools across the country, not only is there not an effort to unlearn race, in fact, it seems there's an effort to make race even more central and to ascribe negative or positive characteristics based on skin color. What's the disconnect here? What you're arguing for seems to be very opposite of what is happening in school throughout the country. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's I'm arguing for something that is certainly not ascendant right now, but it used to seem like common sense. You know, I think what I'm arguing for is in line with civil rights ideals. It certainly is far less controversial in France, where I live, than it is in the United States right now. But essentially, I'm trying to tell anybody who's willing to hear something that Walter Ben Michaels argued in his book, The Trouble with Diversity, which is that, you know, we all have agreed that Race as a biological category isn't real, and it was a mistake to think of ourselves as divided into these biological groupings. And we're essentially saying, but it is a socially constructed category that's just as real as if it was biological, and we're reproducing the same mistake by another means. And we are living with this kind of cognitive dissonance. There's so much slippage in the way we use the term race, where we essentially deny that it has biophysical existence and live our lives as though it does and live our lives as though skin color and superficial characteristics and and ancestry can tell you about individuals discrete individuals and especially in school settings where individuals don't even have much life experience yet that people as members of certain groups participate in certain histories when they haven't even participated yet in defining or creating their own lives it's really when you think about it, the schools are one of the most important places to get this conversation right. But I think we're actually going in the exact wrong direction now. What do you think the message should be for schools? I mean, we're seeing these messages about kind of racial essentialism and and these divisions trickle down even to the youngest grades. There was recently a story about picture books. You can read your two-year-olds about anti-racism and things like that. What do you think is the message? Because I think a lot of you know parents tend to get tripped up when children ask them about race and they don't, you know, they don't know how to properly answer these questions in a way that won't earn them the opprobrium of other parents or teachers. What do you think our schools should be saying? And what do you think parents should be saying to kids about whether there are racial differences and what those mean? Oh, well, I think that, you know, parents and school instructors should be very clear that 
the science that we've basically agreed on for the past several decades is pretty unambiguous that there's not enough differences among population groups to constitute anything like distinct races, that we are all part of one race, which is the human race, and that there are histories of oppression, exploitation, enslavement. There are histories of human interactions that have led to a society in which, unfortunately, the color of your skin oftentimes implies having certain histories of, of either advantage or disadvantage, right? That's real. Racism is real. But, you know, I think kids are, my daughter's seven years old, and she already has a sophisticated enough understanding of race to understand that she's descended from both slaves and enslaved Africans and Europeans, and that she's not a separate race from her parents. Her grandfather, who's been deemed Black in American society, has suffered in certain tangible ways from this designation, but that there's no fundamental difference between him and her grandmother. You know, a child can grasp all of that, actually. A seven-year-old can understand that some groups were treated in ways that we find abhorrent and unacceptable today, and that there are many ways that we might go about addressing this mistreatment, but that reifying ideas about difference and ascribing collective guilt onto individuals is probably not a way to go about healing the wounds that, you know, that we inherit from the past. I actually think that a seven-year-old can fully grasp that. And what we're doing oftentimes by, by telling these kids that they carry the weight of all of these histories of oppression that have preceded them, I think that you're basically guaranteeing that we continue to reproduce the racism that actually creates the racial differences that we think we perceive. Well, either, either the reproduce the racism or the feelings of inferiority or the feelings of superiority. Absolutely. I mean, if you take a Fieldston ethical school, you know, in New York, an elite school that's hovering around $50,000 a year tuition, and, you know, the New York Times and New York Magazine reported several times on this in the past few years, they've had racial affinity groups where students are separated into groups of like races, forgetting for a moment that some kids are <laughs> technically mixed and a half Jewish, half Chinese kid doesn't necessarily know exactly which group to go in. They run back and forth. That's, I, that's what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> they separate into groups. And the most alarming thing that I read in, in the report in New York Magazine was that the white was the only group that was not supposed to talk about things its group had done that it was proud about, but it was supposed to reflect on the privilege that they had and the ways in which, you know, right. they had oppressed other groups. And, you know, these are third graders. Within a couple of weeks, the white group had turned into a white supremacist group. Because clearly, you can't separate people by, by racial difference and tell them to fixate on what makes them different from other races and expect them to forever be self-abnegating. At some point, they're going to, they're going to fixate on the difference right. and feel superior about them or want to feel superior about them. You're, you're encouraging you know, the very same kind of feelings that racists encourage as well. That the category is the thing that matters. It also seems to encourage the separation too. I mean, obviously in, in the sense that we're, you know, putting these kids into separate groups to begin with, but even more so like when, you know, when kids get older and they start to feel more self-conscious, they don't want anyone to think of them as a racist. They don't want to say the wrong thing or act the wrong way or make the wrong assumption. And one possibility is that they'll just avoid these interactions altogether because they're so sensitive and policed and people are observing them so closely that one answer is just, I don't really want to have these interactions at all. It's just easier for me to avoid people 
who come from other backgrounds because I don't know how to act. That's got to be a common kind of response, I would think. In my own life, you know, my own observations, it seems to me that one of the best way to get over some of these things is by living actually among people who are different than you and realizing how much you actually do have in common by not living segregated lives. I think that in America, we really do actually continue to live lives that are segregated by racial difference far more than we would expect. And this idea that you kind of reinforce that separation in in school environments seems to me exactly backwards because there's so much segregation in personal home life as well. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there have been studies recently that show that the vast majority of white people really don't socialize very much with non-whites, especially with, with blacks. This seems to me something that schools should be doing everything they can to overcome. But, you know, it's, you have the affinity group problem at the college level. You know, you have the ACLU at Smith College suing so that there can be separate black dormitories and just doing everything possible, it seems, to make sure that we keep these walls of division up instead of finding ways to bridge them or bring them down. Well, and it seems to be and, and part I, of oh. the, the move toward, I mean, the idea behind it in part seems that we're keeping, you know, certain groups of people safe making them more comfortable by ensuring that they don't have to encounter people of other races, which obviously was part of the point of going to a diverse college in the first place. But that seems to be more, if previously it was like, well, we're going to show you that we have this great diversity by having a dozen people live in this house or that house. Now it seems like the whole safe space movement is part of the the living arrangements. Exactly. I mean, it's what John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff called safetyism in the coddling of the American mind. And it's, it's certainly a driving force behind the push to have students not confront anyone different than them. But that's, you raise an interesting contradiction because we, we've been taught for so long to think of diversity as an inherent good. And then we go and have diverse groups of people together living apart from each other because to encounter each other would actually be too traumatizing. It doesn't make any sense if you think about it for even a moment. It's an are you kidding me moment. <laughs> so, so Thomas, let, let's give the benefit of the doubt. You know, let, let's say for the people who do just see the entire world through the prism of race, you know, and they look at racial disparities in terms of academic outcomes, reading levels. And so it's hard for them to move off of race because when you only see the world through race, you, 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 you see that difference and then you must assume it must be discriminatory by race. How do we find a way to connect with that ideology if we're giving each other the benefit of the doubt? What I find is, you know, it's difficult on social media where you're just talking to, you're talking an argument, you're not talking face-to-face with an actual person who's through whom an argument is passing. I think that oftentimes the way that we encounter these positions encourages us to not resolve the disagreements, but to simply talk past each other. So when I actually talk to people, I try to, and I find it's much easier to do when you're talking to people. I try to make it clear that I understand that, you know, very few people are actually crazy. There are, there are legitimate concerns. Racism exists, but then fixating on race and racism and seeing the entire world through a single lens, I think is counterproductive. And I think we can kind of have these conversations if People can understand that you don't dismiss completely all of their beliefs and concerns and personal experiences. So I think that I'm a bit pessimistic in some ways that we can have productive conversations 
through the technological media that we're increasingly encouraged to encounter each other with. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a concern. But it is, as Ian likes to point out, and sometimes I'm reluctant to see, I think you have to sort of give the the opposite side of the, the benefit of the doubt on some of these questions and sort of come at come at this where they are. And, and many of these people, I think, you know, are sort of one question, I guess, is how much of the anti-racism argument has now trickled down into ordinary people who, you know, don't necessarily agree with it, but just don't want to be seen in a particular light. They don't want their neighbors and their friends and the people in their school community to think of them as being, you know, even remotely racist. And so they're kind of willing to go along with this ideology for that reason. And also they want to you know, they see these disparities and they think to themselves like, well, I, I should do something to fix that. And and maybe the only thing they think is at their disposable is, you know, putting up a sign that says Black Lives Matter, you know, on their social media page. Yeah. But if we were able to sort of push them or, you know, funnel that energy into sort of more productive uses, then maybe we could, you know, get get at this a little bit more productively. Yeah, I think you you raise a good point. I mean, most people, I really do believe simply want to be on the side of good, however they perceive that. And most people also aren't professionally thinking about these questions or, or, or necessarily thinking about them very hard. They're not understanding that what seems good can actually, on further reflection, introduce unforeseen consequences that are actually bad in many ways. That inclusion is good. Who would be against inclusion? Anti-racism, of course, that's good. Who would be against anti-racism? But in fact, if anti-racist arguments and assumptions reinforce the very same ways of thinking that racists adhere to, that can be bad. A lot of people aren't getting to that further step. And yeah, we do have to find ways to channel this, this will to be good, this energy into more productive methods of actually doing something as opposed to simply signaling that you're on the right side. And this is actually really, this is hard. It's hard to do. You know, I mean, people are devoting their entire life's work and careers to trying to to make these distinctions visible for people. But it, it, I don't have a clear answer on how you get, I don't know. I really don't know how to answer that question any better than to think that most people want something good, but are unaware of all of the obstacles that prevent them from actually right. doing collective good. Well, right. I mean, the frustration is when you see very performative stuff. And and your Wall Street Journal piece is actually an interesting example of how an institution can be sort of confused. I mean, the irony of reading your piece, and everyone should take a look at Beyond Black History Month, is that the Wall Street Journal has a convention that it capitalizes the B in Black, but not the W in White. And yet in other sections of the same newspaper that's also trying to signal importance or not, it doesn't do that. I just found that just unbelievable to see that, see that that tension. Here you are trying to say differences shouldn't exist. And yet the newspaper through which you're printing this <laughs> is creating these artificial differences. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just the newspaper. I mean, this is something since the racial reckoning that has been going on in the country since last May. This is something that basically every single media institution has now more or less capitulated on, whether there are some contradictions or not. I mean, almost no publication wants to capitalize the W and white. And there's a logical inconsistency that comes with capitalizing the B, but leaving the white lowercase. 
there's a compelling argument for why is the B in brown. <laughs> in some publications it is. And the I in indigenous now is capitalized in most publications. There was a case for why ethnicities were capitalized and color descriptors were not capitalized because, for example, Latinos can be colored either black or white. If you go to Cuba or Puerto Rico, you know this. So the idea that, you know, that color itself was another ethnicity it doesn't really actually make sense. And if it is another ethnicity, then it doesn't make sense why black is, but white is not. We need to make a decision. Either we're going to capitalize everything or nothing. Yeah. And I think actually it introduces, it's kind of a theme that we've been getting around the whole conversation so far. It introduces unanticipated ideas that mirror the same things that racists think, which is if every group starts to be capitalized except for one, I can't help but notice that one group is special. And guess what group is special? The lowercase white group that is strong enough that no one has to capitalize the letters mm. to make it feel good. It's just another way of reinforcing the specialness of whiteness. Wow. And this is something that you could easily see coming up in like an elementary school classroom. I mean, if now oh, yeah. you're saying like you need to capitalize the B in black, but not the W in white, you know, inevitably some Johnny Susie is going to raise their hand and be like, hey, <laughs> it's, it's I have a why. question for you. And you could have gone through entire grammar lessons without ever having a discussion about race before now. Yeah, it's, totally. Thomas, why is this happening? Why <laughs> are smart people who actually know what it means to do good, not just the virtue signal, but why is this happening? It is confounding. Why is this happening, do you think? A variety of reasons. I think that we are certainly going through something like a collective moral panic. I think that Barack Obama, for a moment, made the country really dream and maybe allowed a lot of people in the country to believe that we had already progressed to a stage of racial reconciliation. That by the second term, when you know those videos started proliferating of Tamir Rice and Eric Garner and all these black men and boys being killed, Philando Castile, and that kind of disconnection between the ideal that a lot of people wanted to believe in about Obama and the reality of the society not being a post-racial utopia yet setting in. And then the kind of four-year state of exception that Donald Trump introduced and the, the kind of panic, the state of panic that put a lot of people in. You know, I think that then, you know, the Me Too movement and a pandemic where everyone's living through social media and the really disturbing, truly disturbing, horrifying video of George Floyd. I think it just sparked something in our collective consciousness that, that really resembles like a moral panic. And I think that people are seeing oppression and violence and racism in all facets of daily life and are, and are kind of experiencing anti-racism as something like a pseudo-religious activity. I, I think it really is on this on this level. I don't think it's a state of being that can last indefinitely, but we are now in the throes of it. So I, I, I do think that a lot of good people are caught up in, 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 in something like when people believe that there were child molesting satanic cults in the 80s and 90s. There's something going on in the collective psyche that's hyperbolic right now. That's an interesting analogy because I think you you see how long lasting even the kind of after effects, like even though, you know, most people don't believe there are a lot of the child molesting satanic cults, although who knows what QAnon thinks. But I do think that the the concern that your child is going to be abducted and molested and just so far outweighs, you know, the actual yeah. risk. 
And you see, I think, you know, 20, 30 years later, how just the remnants of these beliefs continue to kind of infiltrate the culture. And it just makes me wonder, you know, just getting back to sort of the kids in the schools, like, what is going to be the effect of this one or two decades from now? And these kids who have been educated in this particular way, how are they going to behave in society? And and what are going to be the after effects once hopefully this moral panic stops? Well, you know, that's a great point. And things do linger. I'm afraid that one of the after effects that we'll be stuck with is that Black people will not be treated as equal or perceived to be equals in a lot of contexts. And partially because of the world that we're fast creating right now, we're saying that basically to have inclusive environments, standards have to be obliterated. We're saying that concepts like merit are in, inherently anti-Black and racist. I think that that means that what will linger as a perception especially when it's not warranted, of a kind of benevolent patronage that we include Black people because it's the good thing to do and because as well-meaning white people, that's what we do. And, and Black people also kind of, unfortunately, I think, believe that standardized testing, that these things are actually opposed to them and their best interests. And I think that this is going to be really difficult to, to completely wipe away. And, you know, it's one of the things that Glenn Lowry is always on about. It's something that Clarence Thomas has pointed out. It's something that Black conservatives have said for a long time that I used to dismiss. But I do think that, you know, you know it was what, 2003 when Sandra Day O'Connor said, we can imagine that within 25 years, we'll no longer need affirmative action to have diverse classes. That's in five years from now. And we're basically at a stage now where we're saying we're cementing that into the way of doing business ad infinitum. So I just don't see how you can ever have genuine equality so long as these ideas persist. And we are creating a world in which they'll, they'll be with us for quite some time. So I tend to be an optimist, but on, on things like that, I am, I am a bit pessimistic. I know we're coming to a close, but I just have to ask you, because you just referenced it, because even this, this idea of a media narrative, like you just said, for example, the deaths of you know, Philandro Castile, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice. And so you, you, you have this impression of the frequency intensity of, you know, innocent Black men being killed. But if anyone objectively looks at the data, you know that the reason we know these names is because it, it happens so infrequently. How is it going to come to an end if these false narratives continue to be perpetuated? I think that people in the media have to make a point of insisting on saying what's true and real and significant and insignificant, screaming that until they're hoarse, regardless of what's fashionable or what the consensus is expecting you to say. I mean, I think that we have to have many more voices rejecting the kind of panicked tone that right now is unfortunately the business model of many publications and networks. It's a business model to use racism as a way of, you know, engaging a devoted uh, subscriber base. Media companies are making their money off of passionate, ideologically driven subscribers and not off of advertisers that advertise to a large, diverse community of readers. This is impacting the kind of coverage. This is creating the lens through which current events are filtered. I think what has to happen, you know, to push back is just as many people as possible who understand what you're saying, that the amount of people killed per year, especially unarmed people who are killed in such a way that the shooting is unjustified, 
that's a, a significant and problematic number of people, but it's nowhere near the genocide we're being told it is. I know right. we, we need people to make these points clearly, firmly, and consistently. And that's all we can do right now. But my belief is that the future belongs to the people that, that keep it real, that are even-headed, that are not caught up in the panic, and that right now it's, it looks really bad, but it can't last like this. The future belongs to the people that keep it real. All right. Well, wait, actually, Damon, one last question. One last question. Because I, I also realized that, full disclosure, Thomas and I are now advisors on a group that's newly created. Oh, that's right. Called, yes. Called Fair for All. And so, Thomas, I thought I'd give you the last point to make about this new organization and what you would say to parents who are starting to see in their local school board, they're making decisions to have their kids line up for privilege walks where they have to express their privilege or start reading books that they have to declare their oppressor status. How does Fair for All and and this movement of of trying to help parents push back against these kinds of things? Hopefully Fair becomes a place and there are other places that are being created as well. Hopefully these are places that parents can feel comfortable going to to bring objections. Because oftentimes you get the impression that a lot of parents think that what's going on is not necessarily productive or good or they agree with it, but that A, they don't want to stick their neck out because there's a lot of social opprobrium that can come with being out of line or out of consensus or what's perceived to be the consensus. So there has to be a place where parents can feel comfortable knowing that they would get support if they spoke up. And yeah, a lot more parents are going to have to actually exhibit some kind of bravery and courage. You know. FAIR can't do that for them. From what I understand, there's a lot of anonymous talk all the time about parents being concerned and disagreeing with things, but very few people want to actually jeopardize A, their social relations, and B, what they perceive to be their children's best interests. And there's a lot of, unfortunately, it seems that a lot of parents are willing to go along to get along just as long as their kid can get into Stanford. Just like, don't rock the boat, say whatever you have to say, apologize for everyone you have to apologize just so that at Stanford. And then you can go to Stanford through. and do it all over again. And then you know, then you go, but, but somebody's got to move first and somebody's got to be brave, actually. And so FAIR is a great place that people can learn about and can go to. But frankly, they're going to have to also do it. Somebody's got to be brave. Yeah. Right now, I think we're dealing with the crisis of bravery, actually. That's one of the big problems. Thomas, thank you for being brave and being the tip of the spear. On these yeah, days. thank you so much for joining us. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get episodes. We release them every other week, either on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>